0: It was the 11th of June, 1980. William Bonin, who had killed 14 young boys, was seen driving erratically, unsuccessfully attempting to lure five separate youths into his van. When he succeeded in luring a youth into his vehicle, police followed Bonin and quietly approached his vehicle after he parked in a desolate parking lot. After hearing sounds and screams emanating from the van, the plainclothes officers sprang into action. This is part two of the case of William Bonin, the freeway killer. hello my fellow weirdos. How is everybody? I hope everyone has had an amazing week. So before we get started on today's episode, I just want to give a shout out to the lovely hosts of the podcast Bed Crime Stories for leaving me a five star review. I am so stoked that you enjoy what I do here at Horror House and I love what you guys are doing over at your podcast. You guys are awesome. You guys are killing it. No pun intended. Well, actually, no. Pun intended. You guys are killing it. So if you haven't checked these guys out, go on Spotify, go on Apple Podcasts, listen to them, and give them a five-star rating because they are chef's kiss. They're amazing. So give them some love. And thank you so, so much for the love that you're giving me. I really, really appreciate it. So today is part two of the William Bonin Bonanza. I'm not going to trademark that because the guy was a piece of shit and yeah, I don't want to trademark that. But it is the William, it is part two of the William Bonin Bonanza. Part one last week focused on his early life and his murderous escapades. And this episode will be all about his trial and the aftermath. So without further ado, let's get going, shall we? So, on June the 11th, 1980, after nine days of surveillance, police saw Bonin driving in an apparently random manner throughout Hollywood, unsuccessfully attempting to attract five separate young boys into his van until successfully managing to lure a youth into it. Bonin's van was trailed by police until it was stopped in a barren parking lot near the Hollywood Freeway, where they approached it quietly. These plain Uh, officers forced their way into the van after hearing muffled screams and banging coming from inside, where they discovered Bonin Bonin attempting uh, to rape a 17-year-old Orange County runaway named Harold Eugene Eugene Tate, who he had tied up and shackled. Bonin was arrested and imprisoned in lieu of a $250,000 bond after being charged with the rape of a minor and being suspected of Miranda's death. Monroe, who was already worried about Bonin's absence from work, became panicked when his girlfriend informed his superior of his arrest. Monroe then took Bonin's car the next day and escaped to his hometown of St. Clair, Michigan, where he temporarily resided with a friend before being apprehended himself. Investigators would recover various items from inside Bonin's van, attesting to his involvement in the freeway killer murders. Various restraining methods such as lengths of nylon cord, a variety of knives, attire iron and household household objects like pliers and coat hangers were among the supplies found. furthermore, the interior of Bonin's van and portions of his home were heavily bloodstained and the inner handles of his vehicle's passenger side and rear side doors had been removed in a clear attempt to prevent the victims from leaving. Investigators would also discover a scrapbook of newspaper articles relating to the crimes inside the glove box. Because he is a fucking egotistical bastard. I mean, among many other things. After reading an impassioned letter from the mother of King, urging him to reveal the location of her son's body, Bonin would admit his guilt, despite originally protesting his innocence in any of the murders. Bonin would admit to kidnapping, raping and murdering 21 boys and young men over the course of several evenings. He would show no remorse for his acts, but he was quite embarrassed and upset at being caught. But was Bonin's major accomplice in the murders, according to investigators, with Miley and Monroe also involved in other murders. Bonin later told one reporter who asked him what he would be doing if he was still at large, I'd still be killing. I couldn't stop killing. It got easier with each one we did. I mean, they do say if you enjoy what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? I mean, not that being a serial killer is is a good career choice to make. Oh dear, well, there goes any chance of this podcast being sponsored. Numerous distinctive Uh, green carpet strands were found on seven of the victims' bodies, were forensically confirmed to be a perfect match with the carpeting in the back of Bonin's van. And Bonin was physically tied to many of the killings by blood and semen stains. In addition, police uncovered hair samples from three victims' bodies that were a perfect match for old William Bonin. Medical evidence also proved that six of the murders for which Bonin was charged were performed using a unique windless strangulation method, which the uh, prosecutor referred to as a signature, a trademark, during Bonin's Los Angeles County trial. Bonin was first charged with the murder of Grabs on July the 25th, but by July the 29th, he had been charged with the with an additional 15 murders for which he had confessed and for which the prosecution believed they had enough evidence to convict him. Bonin was also additionally charged with 11 counts of robbery, one count of sodomy and one count of mayhem, in addition to the 16 murder indict, indict, in, in, indict, indictments. 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 It's a silent C. Come on, Dom, you've watched enough true crime documentaries and listen to enough true crime podcasts to know how to pronounce indictment. Oh my God. I'm having a fucking horror show here, guys. Good Lord. (laughs) He was... I'm keeping that in as well. He was imprisoned without Bond and these charges were filed against him on August the 8th. Bonin was appointed an attorney named Al Hansen, to act as his legal counsel three days later, in a with Penal Code 987, as he was, at the time, without legal representation. Hansen would remain Bonin's lawyer until October 1981, when he was replaced by William uh, Chavret, Chavret, Chavret and Tracy Stewart at Bonin's request. On the same day as Bonin's initial arraignment police obtained a warrant authorising a search of Butts Lakewood property based on Bonin's confession. This July the 25th search uncovered evidence linking Butts to several of the murders to which Bonin had already confessed. And Butts was charged with accompanying Bonin on six murders committed between August 1979 in April 1980. In addition to that charge, he was also charged with robbery on three counts. In a press statement relating to the police investigation into the murders issued on this date, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department stated, Bonin and Butts are believed to be responsible for the kidnapping, torture and murder of at least 21 young males between May 1979 and June 1980 before adding that five further murder charges would likely be filed against the men in Orange County. Butts would admit to accompanying Bonin on each of the murder forays described in each of the counts against him, as well as actively participating in the sexual assault of multiple victims, despite first asserting his innocence. Butts would claim in his confession that he took part in the murders out of fear, saying it was either go or become the next victim, and that he had only he only had the courage to confess after discovering that Bonin was in custody. Butts insisted he played only a minor role in the victim's torture, but admitted to actively participating in the torture of one victim. Butts stated that after successfully enticing a victim into the van, he would drive aimlessly as Bonin tormented his victims in the back. Then stop the vehicle to assist in restraining the victim as Bonin would escalate the torture. When asked why some victims had been subjected to more severe blunt force injuries than others, Butts would explain that Bonin would often raise the level of beatings he gave his victim if the youth would rebuff his sexual approaches. On November the 14th, 1980, Butts was placed before Orange County Municipal Court Judge Richard Orozco. He was formally charged on this date with involvement in three further murders in this county. The date of his trial was set for July the 27th, 1981. Monroe was caught in his hometown of Port Huron, Michigan on July the 31st and extradited to California where he was charged with Wells's murder. On August the 14th, Monroe pleaded guilty to all allegations levelled against him. Miley, who was 19 at the time, was also apprehended in Texas on August twenty-second and charged by California police with the killings of Miranda and McCab. Miley was arrested after confessing to his role in the deaths of Miranda and McCab in a taped phone conversation with a friend, which confirmed Bonin's earlier confession. On December the eighteenth, he pleaded innocence to two counts of first-degree murder. But in May nineteen eighty-one he pleaded guilty at two different pre-trial sessions. Bonin would formally plead innocent to 14 first-degree murder charges, as well as multiple counts of sodomy, robbery and mayhem at a preliminary hearing held in Los Angeles County before Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge uh, Julius Leatham on January 2nd, 1981. A felony murder robbery special circumstances was also stated in 11 of these charges. I'll be honest, I have no idea what the hell a felony murder robbery special is. To me, it just sounds like some secret menu item you'd find at some serial killer cafe that you would pass on a motorway. Like, don't go to that cafe, guys. If you spot a serial killer cafe, don't go to it. Just, Just... steer very clear of that. Hold the piss that you've been holding for two hours. Bonin was ordered to return to court on January the 7th for pre-trial motions and a formal trial date setting. Butts was charged with five counts of murder and three counts of robbery on the same day. Judge Leatham had had postponed Butts' formal plea date until January the 7th. Butts would commit suicide by hanging himself in his cell four days after his formal plea before Judge Lethem. Butts had tried to commit suicide at least four times before his arrest, according to a coroner's investigation. Butts' attorney, Joe Ingber, speculated that the approaching release of transcripts of his client's evidence at at the preliminary hearing in which Butts had graphically described the torture the victims had undergone previous to their murder, had exasperated his melancholy state. Butts had also refused to accept any type of plea deal or testify against Bonin at the time of his death. In exchange for being spared the death penalty, Miley and Monroe pledged to testify against Bonin in his upcoming trials with Deputy District Attorney Sterling Norris also offering to seek the dismissal of additional counts of sodomy and robbery filed against Monroe if he kept to his word. In the instance of Miley, Norris agreed to take two separate guilty pleas to first-degree murder in exchange for two concurrent life sentences with a 25-year parole potential if Miley consented to testify against Bonin at the trials. William Pugh consented to testify as well, pleading guilty to voluntary manslaughter and obtaining a sentence of six years in jail. On October the 19th, 1981, Bonin was charged with the murder of twelve of his victims whose remains were discovered inside this constituency and was taken to trial in Los Angeles County. Superior Court Judge William Keane presided over his trial, which would commence on November the 5th. 1981. As prosecutor, Norris sought the death penalty for each count of murder charged against Bonin. Norris stated in his opening speech that we will prove he is the freeway killer, as he bragged to a number of witnesses. We will show you that he enjoyed the killings. Not only did he enjoy it and planned to enjoy it, he had an insatiable demand, an insatiable appetite, not only for sodomy, but for killing. Norris went on to say that Bonin's murders had followed a, dis- a depressingly similar pattern of enticing or forcing his victims into his van, then overpowering and binding them. He would then repeatedly rape his captive between and throughout instances of torture before finally reaching the climax of the orgy by killing his victim. Norris further claimed that Bonin viewed murder as a team sport, and that he would recruit people with a poor mentality to help him carry out many of his killings. At Bonin's Los Angeles County trial, Miley and Monroe testified against him, revealing in graphic detail the murders in which they had accompanied him. Monroe testified in his November the 17th testimony that he and Bonin travelled to a McDonald's restaurant shortly after the Wells murder, and purchased hamburgers with $10 seized from Wells' wallet. Bonin chuckled and mused as they ate their burgers at Bonin's house, with Bonin jokingly saying, Thanks, Steve, wherever you are, before before Monroe joined in the laughs. You know, a hell of a sense of humour Bonin had. As you can see, he was a funny fucker. Like, you know, he should have been a comedian, not a serial killer. Funny, funny guy. Funny guy. Miley testified about his role in the Miranda and McCabe killings, explaining how the two victims were beaten and tortured with various objects before being murdered and how he heard a bunch of bones cracking as Bonin pressed a tire iron against Miranda's neck. Miley would continue his testimony with the words, The kid vomited. I jumped down on him the same way, killing the guy. As Bonin's accomplices delivered their testimonies, several members of the audience hurriedly exited the courtroom, later telling reporters gathered outside that the recounted details were too disgusting. I mean, they have a point. They have a point. They're not wrong. The strategy of Bonin's defence attorneys, uh, Chavette and Stewart, was to question the credibility of numerous prosecution witnesses and to suggest that the extensive physical, sexual and emotional abuse that Bonin had suffered throughout his childhood were extremely significant mitigating factors in the root causes of Bonin's behaviour. Dr David Foster, a specialist on the developmental impacts of violence and abuse on children, was summoned by Bonin's defence attorneys to speak out Uh, to speak about the findings of the psychiatric assessments he had conducted on Bonin. Bonin, according to Foster, did not receive the caring, safety and behavioural feedback he needed due to frequent abandonment. He claimed that the pattern had been so regular and pervasive that Bonin was unsure of the distinctions between violence and love. The prosecution called Forensic psychiatrist, uh, Psychiatrist Park Dietz, a well-known expert in impulsive control disorder and sexual sadism disease, as a direct rebuttal, who testified that Bonin's general pattern of behaviour was, was inconsistent with an ability to control his impulses. Bonin's acts, according to Dietz, were the result of preparation rather than impulsive activity. In conclusion, Dietz found that Bonin was a sexual sadist and that Although having an antisocial personality disorder, neither of these disorders had hampered his ability to control his behaviours. On November the 24th, a prison inmate named Lloyd Douglas testified that while both were detained in the Los Angeles County Jail in the summer of 1980, Bonin boasted to him about his involvement in the freeway killer murders. According to Douglas, Bonin had held a newspaper article aloft before saying to him these are the little boys I got a hold of. Douglas admitted under cross-examination that he only told police about these claims after pleading guilty to the filing of charges of voluntary manslaughter and 2nd degree burglary against him and that he had been freed from detention the month before. Douglas also testified that he was victim Lawrence Sharp's cousin. A Fresno-based reporter named David Lopez waived his previously sought immunity under California Shield law and agreed to testify on behalf of the prosecution about the details of seven interviews Bonin granted him between uh, December 1980 and April 1981, despite Bonin's defence attorney's objections. On the 14th and 15th of December, Lopez testified that Bonin had first instructed him that he would refuse to speak with any other reporter unless Lopez agreed not to broadcast the exact facts of the conversation. Lopez had agreed to these terms and on January the 9th, Bonin confessed to him that he was the freeway killer and that he had killed 21 people. So David Lopez fucked fucked Bonin over and fucked him over royally. And it is fucking beautiful. So it's that time in the podcast where I play a little promo for another awesome podcast. And this week, it is from Ghoul Interrupted. Enjoy! there? Are you interested in the paranormal? Do you believe in life after death? Have you ever wanted to go ghost hunting? If so, then join us on Ghoul Interrupted, a podcast that takes our listeners from history to investigation to conversations with other enthusiasts like yourselves to present a case for the paranormal. Join us three times a month. Because sometimes to stay sane, you just need to go ghost hunting. Bonin had revealed that the victim's ages ranged from 12 to 19, with the youngest victim, McCabe, being the simplest to kill. According to Lopez, Bonin admitted that, despite his dislike for the prospect of execution, he chose to kill repeatedly because he relished the sound of kids dying. Lopez also testified that Bonin told him that he killed one victim by repeatedly hitting him in the throat and that the promise of a cheeseburger for Bonin while police searched San Bernardino County for the remains was the key inducement for him to give the location of King's body to investigators. From December 16th to December 22nd, 1981, closing arguments were heard. Norris, speaking for the prosecution, characterised Bonin as an insatiable, ruthless individual who acted with malice afterthought and took great joy in the misery he placed on his victims. Having outlined the torture Bonin's victims had endured, Norris concluded his closing arguments by urging the jury to give him what he has earned. On December the 21st, defence attorney Chauvet began his closing arguments. Although he did not expressly ask the jurors to find Bonin not guilty, he did suggest that they only return the reasonable verdict you can bring, implying the likelihood of not guilty verdicts on at least part of the counts. Trevette then shifted his attention to the legitimacy of some of the testimony, slamming Miley and Monroe in particular, claiming that they had, hamper, they had tampered with the state's evidence, and as a result, had tailored their testimony to the police's demands. As a result, Chauvet referred to their testimony as unbelievable. Chauvet constantly reminded the jury that he had exposed multiple, multiple contradictions in Monroe's story of Wells' murder in various statements he had provided, forcing him to concede that he lied on several occasions. He also reminded the jury of Bonin's considerable mistreatment as a youngster, as well as the diagnosis made by doctors at the at, at the Atascadero. It's been a while since I've said that Atascadero Hospital between 1969 and 1971. He would then claim the prosecution's case was full of holes, and that the prosecution had resorted to revulsion tactics in the hopes that Bonin would be convicted upon that basis. Imagine being the defense attorney for William Fucking Bonin. Like, he probably got paid bag for it, but Jesus, imagine being imagine being the defence counsel for that piece of shit. Following the conclusion of the closing remarks, Judge Keane adjourned the trial until December the 28th when he gave the jury his final instructions and they formally began deliberations. Bonin's first trial lasted until January the 6th, 1982. On this date, the jury convicted uh, convicted Bonin of 10 of the murders for which he was tried, although he was found not guilty of the murders of Lundgren and King, not guilty of committing sodomy upon grabs, and not guilty of committing mayhem, mayhem upon Lundgren, and not guilty of robbing one other victim. Many family and friends of Bonin's victims sobbed openly as the court clerk announced the verdicts. The prosecution and defence exchanged appeals for the sentence the jury should determine the next day, with Norris demanding the death penalty and Charvet requesting life imprisonment. Bonin was cleared of the sodomy and murder of King because he had led police to the body of the victim in December 1980, with the agreement that his leading of police to the body could not be used against him in courts and therefore the prosecutors had di- had discussed King's appearance, disappearance at the trial, but not the discovery of his body. He was cleared of the charges of mayhem and murder against Lundgren because, according to Lopez, he had strenuously denied committing this particular killing in the interviews he had granted to him. Judge Keane ordered reconvening of the courts on February the 24th at which time Chauvet was to argue for a reduction in the sentence recommended by the jury. Despite Chauvet's passionate pleas, Keane formally sentenced Bonin to death for the 10 murders for which he had been convicted on March the 12th. Describing the murders as a gross revolting affront to human dignity, Keane further ordered at this hearing that if Bonin's death sentence were communed to one of life imprisonment. The sentences should run consecutively. Bonin was then reminded to the warden of San Quentin State Prison, where he would be put to death in the gas chamber. He was unaffected by the sentence, having previously assured his lawyers that he fully anticipated to be sentenced to death. Bonin was temporarily, temporarily removed from death row and placed in solitary prior to his anticipated second trial in Orange County, where he stayed until the trial's end. While inca- incarcerated in this capacity, Trevette attempted to obtain a change of venue, claiming that the extensive pre-trial publicity surrounding the case in the county had reduced the chances of obtaining an unbiased jury within the jurisdiction. However, this notion was denied by Judge Kenneth Lay, who ruled in November 1982 that the freeway killer case in Orange County had only received minimal publicity following Bonin's earlier convictions. On March the 21st, 1983, Bonin was taken to trial in nearby Orange County, charged with the robbery and murder of four more victims found slain in this jurisdiction between November 1979 and May 1980. Judge Kenneth Lay of the Superior Court presided over this trial. On this date, the first round of jury selection began with a total of 204 potential jurors going through the procedure until 16 were chosen in June. Uh, Brian, Brian Brown, no relation, the prosecutor in Bonin's Orange County trial, claimed that all four victims killed inside this constituency were kidnapped while hitchhiking and forced to undress before being bound around the wrists and the ankles. The rape Beatings, torture and finally ligature strangling had all been inflicted on all four of the victims. The ligature had left an indentation on the victim's neck that measured about half an inch in each case. Brown also drew attention to the similarities between these killings and two others for whom Bonin had already been found guilty in Los Angeles County, those of Miranda and Wells. The fiber evidence collected on each of the Orange County victims, along with three victims killed in Los Angeles County, were found to be a perfect match to the characteristic carpeting in the back of Bonin's van. As a result, according to Brown, the four Orange County victims were murdered by the same person who murdered Miranda and Wells. And his accomplices in these two murders, uh, Miley and Monroe, would testify that they accompanied Bonin on each. Of these killings. The prosecution provided forensic specialists who testified that the fibres discovered on the bodies of all six victims were a perfect match for the carpeting in Bonin's vehicle, bolstering this claim. Human blood had also been splattered across the van's inside. Brown told the jurors one can truly say from the evidence found within the van, it is a virtual death wagon. These claims were refuted by Travette, who claimed that any similarities in method of operation did not automatically prove Bonin's guilt and that the evidence presented did not support the prosecution's claim that Bonin murdered any of the four Orange County victims or, two, or the two victims killed in Los Angeles County beyond a reasonable doubt. Specifically, Chavette attacked the credibility of Monroe and further contended Bonin was simply a scapegoat for four unsolved murders. Charvette also argued before the jury that Brown had spent more time discussing the Los Angeles cases for which uh, Bonin had previously been convicted than actually proving Bonin had committed any of the Orange County murders. Bonin's lawyers called two witnesses in his defence during the six-week trial, one of which was Monroe who said Bonin had corresponded with him prior to his appearing in, his, in this second trial, requesting that he lie when asked to give his testimony. Monroe, Monroe just threw him under the bus. God damn, Monroe. No chill. No chill. On August the 1st, the jury retired to consider their decisions after hearing the final arguments from both councils. They deliberated for less than three hours before announcing on August the 2nd that they had convicted Bonin guilty on each of the four murders, as well as three counts of robbery. On August the 22nd, the jury delivered its recommendation that Bonin be put to death on each count after three days of deliberations. The formal sentencing was postponed, to August and postponed until August the 26th by Judge Lay. Bonin was sentenced to death four more times on this date with Judge Lay describing Bonin as sadistic and guilty of monstrous criminal conduct. Bonin was flown from the Orange County Jail to San Quentin State Prison in a Beechcraft Model 34 aircraft in March 1982 where he awaited execution in the gas chamber. He pursued painting and writing as hobbies throughout his time on death row and even garnered several modest accolades for his artwork, short tales, and poetry. See, wrong career choice, Willie. Wrong career choice. Why are you serial killing when, you know, you could be an artiste? Dear, oh dear. He also became acquainted with convicted murderers Lawrence Bittaker, Randy Kraft, oh Randy, oh Randy, we remember him, and Douglas Clark and Jimmy Lee Smith. Almost immediately after his arrival, he was placed in the same row as Viseker, who was previously incarcerated with Bonin at Los Angeles County Jail and subsequently helped Bonin obtain earphones for a television set in his cell. Bonin would also connect with several people, including the mothers of some of his victims, though he never expressed regret for murdering their kids. Bonin told victim Sean King's mother... Uh, Lavada uh, Giffords, to whom he had written 13 times that her son had been his favourite victim because he was such a screamer. She wrote to him in 1989 inquiring about his apparent conversion to Christianity and asked him several questions regarding her son. Bonin, it appears, would withhold information from victims' mums on purpose, clearly taking pleasure in their misery. He also claimed to his defence counsel, as well as numerous people with whom he corresponded, that Butts was the true mastermind behind the murders and that he was merely Butts' accomplice. So it looks like that buddy cop duo is no more at this point. And they were so close to having their own TV show and, and they threw it away. You know, they could have had a prime slot Bonin and Butts, the wacky adventures of Bonin and Butts. But no, no, they were like, we don't want that. Shame. (laughs) These claims would be refuted by Norris, the prosecutor of Bonin's Los Angeles County murder trial, who recollected shortly before Bonin's execution, he was the leader and he chose weak people that he could use. Following the execution of Robert Alton Harris in 1992, the state of California replaced Bonin's method of execution with lethal injection. During his 15 minute execution in the gas chamber, Harris had shown signs of suffering for up to four minutes, convulsions being among the symptoms. As a result, the state of California chose lethal lethal injection over the gas chamber as an alternative form of execution. Calling the the gas chamber cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, I I get it. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, did he really deserve to go in a more humane way? I don't know. I don't know. Where do you guys sit? Would you guys class the gas chamber or uh, the electric chair as cruel and unusual punishment? I'll be interested. I'll be interested to hear what you guys think. Bonin appealed his verdicts and sentences on a number of occasions, citing jury bias, the risk of juror uh, enragement from listening to multiple victim impact testimonies, and insufficient defence as reasons for each appeal. Bonin recruited new counsel for these appeals, who first claimed that his former defence attorney, uh, Chovet, had provided insufficient defence at his trials by failing to lay enough attention on Bonin's bipolar disease and childhood sexual abuse. These attorneys claim that if Chauvet had focused more on these matters, Bonin would have been humanised in the eyes of his juries. Bonin's death penalty convictions in August 1988 and January 1989 were upheld by the United States Supreme Court and each subsequent appeal was unsuccessful. Despite maintaining Bonin's convictions, the Supreme Court chastised Judge Keane for failing to heed the prosecution's warning prior to the Los Angeles County trial that Monroe had discussed the prospect of accepting to legal counsel by Chevette before his testimony. Despite having warned Trevett about a probable conflict of interest, Judge Keane had allowed him to represent Bonin at his first trial. Despite this, the Supreme Court found in 1989 that Trevett had effectively cross-examined Monroe at trial and that Keane's conduct had not effectively hindered Bonin's legal defence despite being ruled inexplicable. Further merit was given to Bonin's contention that his defence should have been allowed to stipulate to the testimony of the parents of his victims rather than their being allowed to identify photographs of their sons in both life and death at his trials. Despite this ruling, the finding was also deemed not to have affected the overall verdict. In October 1994, Bonin filed a final submission to the United States Court of Appeals. Arguing that he had been denied effective assistance of counsel at his trials, that he had been that he had been denied due process at his Los Angeles trial, due to the judge judge's refusal to suppress the testimony of Monroe and Miley, and that the judge at his Orange County trial had denied his counsel's motion for a change of venue on the basis that the pre-trial publicity had been effective. I mean, my boy's trying. He's trying. You can say many things about Willie, but you can't say that he, that he ain't persistent at the end of the day. You know, he is a persistent man, definitely. On June the 28th, 1995, judges dismissed Bonin's final appeal, stating that there was no evidence of legal misconduct and that there was no evidence that the 13 jurors who served on Bonin's Orange County trial had admitted to minimal indirect exposure to the freeway killer case had been rendered incapable of judging Bonin impartially as a result of this publicity. As a result, the appeal judges expressed their satisfaction with Bonin's convictions. On February 20th 1996, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected a plea for clemency submitted by Bonin's attorneys on the grounds of inadequate legal representation at both of his trials. Bonin's final appeal to overturn his death sentence was denied by the Supreme Court just one hour before his scheduled execution, with the convened panel almost unanimous- unanimously agreeing that Bonin's own attorneys had not failed to provide adequate legal representation by not discovering their submitted claims to have discovered evidence att- attesting to Bonin's innocence earlier. Furthermore, these judges ruled that Bonin's lawyers should not have waited until the last minute to file arguments to overturn or delay their client's impending death sentence. Bonin's final claim, that he had the right to choose between the gas chamber and lethal injection as his method of execution, was similarly dismissed by the assembled justices. I fucking adore that they left it one hour before his execution to be like, Oh, yeah, uh, your your appeal got rejected. Lol. Anywho, enjoy the rest of your... Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yeah, the execution. Oh, man. What a shitter. <laughs> Bonin claimed he had made peace with the fact that he was about to die in a final interview given to a, given to a local radio station less than 24 hours before he was executed, adding that his only major regret in life was that he had not pursued his teenage passion of bowling long enough to have turned professional. See? Another missed opportunity. He could have been the best 10-pin bowler in history. He could have been a strike machine, but instead he decided to murder and rape people. Like, come on, come on, Willie, come on. He expressed his disagreement with the state's decision to execute him, stating, a lot of people believe I should die for what I have done. I don't agree. Bonin also denied any responsibility for his actions, claiming his urge to kill was too strong to resist, before expressing his hope that the Lord will understand me, and I know that I couldn't help and know that I couldn't help what I did. When asked whether there was anything he had to say to the families of his victims, Bonin stated, "They feel my death will bring them closure, but that's not the case. They're going to find out. Bonin was moved from his cell to a Death Watch cell at 6pm on the day of his execution when he ordered his final meal. Two large pizzas, three pints of ice cream and three six-packs of Coke, which he ate while watching an episode of Jeopardy. His final hours were spent in the company of five individuals whom he had chosen for this occasion. His attorney, uh, the chaplain, and a potential biographer were among them. Bonin appeared resigned to his fate according to each person, and his attorney added that he had not sensed any remorse in his client. Bonin was escorted from his holding cell to the execution chamber at eleven forty five PM. Bonin exhibited no remorse for his crimes in his farewell statement given to the jail warden one hour before his scheduled execution at midnight, and left a note that stated I feel the death penalty is not an answer to the problems at hand. I feel it sends the wrong message to the people of this country. Young people act as they see other people acting instead of as people tell them to act. I would advise that when a person has a thought of doing anything serious against the law, that before they did, they should go to a quiet place and think about it seriously. So as one who does not take his own advice that he gives to other people, Bonin really should have taken his own advice on that one. You know, just, just saying. At 12.13am, Bonin was pronounced dead. At the time of his execution, he was 49 years old. Bonin's relatives elected not to attend his execution, but several families of his victims did, and many of them wept and embraced when his death was officially concern, uh, confirmed. Bonin's execution went off without a hitch, according to numerous witnesses, and he was severely drugged for the last stages of his procedure. On this subject, then-Governor Pete Wilson referred to Bonin as the poster boy for capital punishment, before adding that California's method of execution ensured his death was infinitely more pleasant than than that of his victims. Wilson had rejected a submitted plea for clemency from Bonin's attorneys three days prior to the execution. Bonin's 61-year-old father died of cirrhosis of the liver on October the 11th, 1980, four months after his imprisonment. His ailment was caused by his excessive alcoholism. In the weeks after his execution in 1996, Bonin's family declined to accept his remains. His ashes were burned in a private ceremony without the presence of any of his family members, and later Bonin's ashes were dispersed across the Pacific ocean. Throughout Bonin's trials and the years of his subsequent confinement on death row, experts speculated and debated if, this, if his actions stemmed from his very traumatic and chaotic upbringing. Although both opponents and supporters of the death penalty agreed that Bonin had been subjected to extensive physical, emotional and sexual abuse throughout his childhood, The claims made by his attorneys and supporters that his murders were a direct result of the abuse he had suffered and an attempt to vent his frustration and anger on his victims were widely dismissed. In one article published in the San Francisco Chronicle three days prior to Bonin's execution, editor Robert Morse uh, stated, Bonin was abused as a child. The abuse seems to have been bad, but not nearly as gruesome as the abuse he Dealt out. This world is filled with articulate people who can write and paint and were abused as children. Very few of them become serial killers. The crime rate among the mentally ill is lower than among the so called normal people. To call Bonin's evil a psychiatric disorder, as his defence has, or an illness is to slander the mentally ill. As stated earlier, Butts, who is accused of accompanying or assisting Bonin, in at least nine of the murders hung himself on January the 11th, 1981, while awaiting trial. He didn't leave a suicide note. Um, he was set to stand trial on July the 27th for six of the murders he had joined Bonin on at the time of his death. Butts was clearly upset, or it stated that Butts was clearly upset by the approaching release of a transcript of evidence he had delivered behind closed doors at his uh, preliminary hearing days before and the impact it would have on his friends and relatives, according to correspondence, recovered in his cell. McVicker, who survived a 1975 assault and partial strangulation at Bonin's hands and witnessed Bonin's death firsthand, was haunted for years by his ordeal. He was plagued by nightmares about the occurrences every night, Drops out of high school and became addicted to drugs and alcohol. Despite this, he described the experience of witnessing the execution as closure and the beginning of my life. McVicker was actively has actively worked in the years since Bonin's execution to keep his accomplices, Miley and Monroe behind bars. In one interview granted in 2011, Mick Vicker stated that the primary reason he had been inspired to campaign against their release were the words one of the victim's mother had spoken to him after he had testified at Bonin's first trial. You've got to speak for my kid. Monroe was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison for the murder of Stephen Wells in the second degree on April the 6th 1981. He has appealed his sentence several times, saying that he did not realise Bonin was the freeway killer until after Wells' death and that he was duped into accepting a plea deal in which he pled guilty to secondary murder. He's also written to several governors asking that he be executed rather than spend the rest of his life in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Monroe has been rejected parole several times, and is currently jailed in Mole Creek State Prison. He will be eligible for parole again in 2029. On February the 5th, 1982, Superior Court Judge uh, Bonnie Lee Smith sentenced Miley to 25 years to life in prison for the first degree murder of Charles Miranda. Miley was advised on this date that he would have to spend a minimum of 16 years and 8 months before being considered for parole. An Orange County court judge later sentenced him sentenced him to a concurrent term of 25 years to life in prison for the kidnapping and murder of James McCabe. Miley was first imprisoned at the California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility and State Prison in uh, Cor- 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 Corcoran, Corcoran, California before being transferred to Mole Creek State Prison. Mole Creek, California. Miley was constantly admonished for breaking prison rules over the years of his confinement. Possession of illegal narcotics and trying non-consensual sodomy with fellow inmates were among the many reprimands that he had accumulated. As you can see, prison really, really changed Miley. You know, turned him like turned him around completely. What a piece of fucking shit. <laughs> Miley died on May the 25th, 2016 from injuries acquired two days before in an exercise yard at Moore Creek State Prison after he was attacked by another inmate. He was first assessed at the prison, uh, the prison medical facility before being returned to his cell. He was eventually taken to the hospital after collapsing two hours after the attack. Miley's next sh- uh, scheduled parole hearing was set for 2019, at the time of his death. He was most recently eligible for parole in October 2014 after agreeing to a three-year extension of his most recent parole request. On October the 29th, 2014, a subsequent suitability hearing was held and the judgment was taken at this hearing to refuse his parole. On May 17th, 1982, Pugh was sentenced to six years in jail for the voluntary manslaughter of Harry Turner. Pugh had been charged with Turner's first degree murder, as well as robbery and sodomy charges. However, after five days of deliberation, the jury found Pugh guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter, but not uh, guilty of robbery or sodomy. He was freed from prison in late 1985 after serving less than four years of his sentence. And that is the end of the William Bonin Bonanza. The William Bonin two-part Bonanza. (laughs) Thank fuck for that. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, this has been a bit of a traumatic one, hasn't it? But we made it through, guys. We got there. We made it through. So, plans have changed for next week's episode. And next week, um, I will be covering the case of Judy Buenono. That's how it's spelled. So I'm gonna go with that's how it's pronounced. But Buenono, what a surname, also known as the Black Widow. It's been a long minute since I've done a female-centered killer case. So I feel it's time for some female representation on this podcast. So Judy, you're up next week, my love. In the meantime, follow the podcast on all social medias at Horror House Pod on Instagram and Twitter and like the Facebook page at Horror House Pod. Horror House is on all spot, uh, all podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Good Pods. You know, it's, it's everywhere. So you can find the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Please check out the merch store as well and treat yourself because at the end of the day, You can never have enough hoodies or mugs. I mean, that's just my opinion, but you can never have enough hoodies or mugs. So check out the merch store and get yourself a mug or a hoodie or anything, really. (laughs) And also leave a rating and a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the website. You know, it helps so much. It takes two minutes to give a rating. It takes, you know, 30 seconds to write out a little review. So please do. It helps independent podcasters like myself massively. So all that's left to say is until next time, stay spooky.